0: All right, so how many of you guys are seniors? We asked who were freshmen earlier. Where are our seniors? Raise your hands. All right, seniors, awesome. Thank you guys for, uh, for not giving in too much to senioritis and, uh, and being out here tonight. Um, I, I was thinking as I was preparing this talk about a season in my life that was really, really close to the season in life you guys are in right now. And it was the first few months after I graduated from college, really maybe even the first year. I went through a crisis of how I thought about home during that season. I'd gone through a big transition of how I thought about home while I was in college. And maybe you all can relate to this as well. When I, early in my freshman year, if you heard me say, I'm going home this weekend, I meant I'm gonna go visit my parents this weekend, right? Not that long into my college career that transitioned. And when I said I'm going home, what that meant is I was probably at my parents' house and I was getting ready to go back to college, right? Have any of you all made that transition where this town and this university and this maybe even this community kind of feels a little bit even more like home than the home you grew up in, right? Why is that? Well, partly because you guys are forming just fantastic relationships. You're you're adults in a a, a town for the first time in your lives, right? And that that means you're, you're kind of feeling ownership of the community around you more than you have in the past. But also, you've probably noticed that when you go to your parents' house, it's not quite the same as it was when you were living there, right? The people who made that place home, many of them aren't there when you visit, right? They're off at other colleges. And even if they are there, they're a little bit different now. And you're a little bit different. It doesn't feel the same. So, and when I was in school, Virginia Tech and Blacksburg and even crew there was, became home to me. And then I graduated and I moved down to Orlando for several years. And I remember the, the first six months year I was down there, I began, I'd have this, this desire to go, to go home, to go visit home. You know, that feeling like, I just need to rest. I just need to, to go home. But it was a really hard desire to satisfy because I already had like transitioned to a place where my parents' house didn't really feel like home anymore. I still liked visiting because I loved my parents. But it already didn't feel like home. And so I'd try to go visit my, like, my college community like back in Blacksburg. And it was wonderful and nostalgic. And got to watch some football games and stuff. But it wasn't home anymore. The people who had made it home had moved on. Right? I had moved on. And so it was this weird thing. I felt this strong craving to do something and go somewhere home that didn't actually exist for me because Orlando wasn't home yet either. And it was this bizarre experience. And during this time, uh, the Bible promises about our eternal home became very uh, just precious to me. Hebrews chapter 11 became something I read all the time because this idea of talking about these people who are longing for a home they can't go to because it doesn't exist here on earth, Right. And this passage we're going to look at tonight became a passage that was, was very precious to me because it talks about home. And I also started listening to a lot of cheesy music about home. Uh, there was a band, and sometimes, you know, just driving around, I'd, I'd listen to some songs about this idea of home. There was a band called OAR that was really popular when I was in high school. And if you guys heard of OAR? A couple of you. That's wonderful. I, thumbs down. You probably just listened to their studio stuff. The studio stuff's not great. Their live stuff was awesome. They were one of the great live bands of the late 90s. They were awesome. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me read you one, some of the cheesiest lines you'll ever hear about home that I just listened to because I, just, I was eating it up at the time. So just humor me for a minute. Uh, the, this song is called I Feel Home. And the, uh, the song goes, there are few things pure in this world anymore, and home is one of the few. We'd have a drink outside and maybe run and hide if we saw a couple men in blue. But to me, it's so dang easy to see that the people, that your people are the people at home. Well, I've been away, but now I'm back today, and there ain't no place I'd rather go. So what he's talking about here is his high school experience of being home. And you know it's high school because he's talking about, like, they're drinking alcohol and the cops show up, and maybe that was a little bit like your high school experience too. And that's okay. There's always time to repent, right? Um... But, you know, he, and so he's talking about his feeling of being home, and he's longing for it. Think of the irony here. That kid, when he was in high school, who was hanging out around a, a, a campfire, what was that kid dreaming about? Probably dreaming about being a rock star, traveling the world, and playing, playing concerts, right? And now that he is that, he's writing songs saying, I wish I could go back to that, that, that campfire, hanging out with my friends outside in high school, because that felt like home. And the rest of the song is this expression that he can't recapture that. Like, I couldn't recapture it after college. Because, you know, he could go back physically, but everyone had moved on, either geographically or in their lives. And so this is how he concludes the song. Well, in the end, we can all call our friends. That's something that I pray is true. And in a thousand years, after a thousand tears, I will find my original crew. Again, it's it's cheesy, I know. But do you catch what he prays there? I don't know if he's actually religious or actually prayed, but he says his prayer, more or less, is that the afterlife, a thousand years from now, is going to be experiencing this feeling of being home. Why? Because he knows he can't recapture it here. And he's just hoping that he'll be able to experience that in the future, even with the same people. And this is a prayer that I, can, I, could, I can't relate to as much at this stage in my life, but I could totally relate to it in the stage that you all will be heading into next in your life. And amazingly, the passage we're getting ready to read from John chapter 14, as we continue our, passage, our journey through the book of John here, uh, that passage is more or less going to tell us that the answer to OAR's prayer is, sure, yeah, that's more or less what the afterlife is going to be like. That's what heaven's going to be like. And so, uh, let's read that passage, John 14, verses 1 through 7, and we'll see how, you know, maybe OAR was, uh, was maybe they'd recently read this passage right before they wrote that song. So, John 14, 1 through 7, goes like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, in, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, important detail. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let me pray, and we'll talk about this passage. Uh, Father God, I thank you for these students who have come to uh, spend time together, spend time worshiping you, and spend time thinking about your word. I pray that you'd be with me as we, we talk about this passage, and that your truth would be proclaimed. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so some context here is important. Jesus is having dinner with his disciples, his closest followers, and this is basically his last meal, you could say. It's the Passover meal, a traditional Jewish holiday, and he is getting ready. The next thing that's going to happen is he is going to be arrested and he's going to be put on the cross. And he is telling his disciples right before this passage, that's going to happen, And by the way, it's going to happen because one of you are going to betray me, Jesus is saying. Which is why he says, let not, he starts off by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Because that's a troubling thing. The person you've been following for several years now and who you have become to believe is the Messiah just told you, I'm getting ready to die and it's going to be your fault, right? He says, nevertheless, don't be troubled. Um, Why not? Well, first of all, don't be troubled. But instead, he says, believe in God. Also, he says, believe in me, kind of equates himself with God there. That's interesting. Not surprising, because in John chapter 1, if you recall, we saw right off the bat, John tells us Jesus is God, right? So believe in God, which means you'll also believe in me. But also don't be troubled, because I'm I'm giving you a promise. And here is the promise. I am going to prepare a room for you in my Father's house. And in context, that, of course, means I'm going to go prepare a home for you in heaven. I'm going to prepare a room for you in my Father's home in heaven, right? So think about this for a second. What if I told you, all right, after a large group, I said, hey, by the way, I've been clearing out, we've been clearing out the guest room in my house, and that room now is yours. So here's a key, you know, come and go as you please, Uh, right? What would that mean? That would mean that my home had suddenly also become your home. By the way, I'm, I'm not doing that. I apologize. Uh, our rooms are, are filled up right now. Um, but if I did, that would mean that my house had now become your home. Because if you have a room somewhere that has been prepared for you, that means that place is your home. The house is, is your home. It's where you live. I think this is why my mom has more or less kept my childhood bedroom exactly like it was the day I graduated high school. Right, same posters up, same everything. Right, there's probably an OAR poster up in there, because she she wants me to continue to think of her house, my parents' house, as my home, and even more importantly, she wants to think of it as my home, right? Because she's nostalgic. Um, where you have a room, you have a home. What's the implication of this? Well, John Moody, who wrote a wonderful little commentary in the Book of John, says this. If you, Jesus, saying that if you belong to Jesus, there is a specific place in heaven designed for you individually. Heaven is not a generic place. I'm sorry, a generic praise and worship service, or a place where angels strum harps on in clouds. There is a place that has been specifically designed for you and for me. Therefore, Jesus says, "Do not let your hearts be troubled." Why? Because the best is yet to come. No matter what you're experiencing right now that's troubling, Jesus says you have a home in heaven that is going to await you, and that should give you some some comfort. This is a beautiful promise. I know that we are, including myself, are ages that we're not actively usually thinking about our own passing, right? Right? Um, but, you know, we, we know people who, who have gone, uh, gone on before us. As I think about friends who have been followers of Jesus, who have passed away. Some were part of this community right here in JMU crew. And I think of them immediately after passing away, arriving in a home with a room prepared for them. A place that would be their home for eternity that they can enjoy it, it does help my heart not be troubled. And I hope it helps your heart not be troubled as well. So Jesus says, after that, he's like, I, I have to go. I'm going to be leaving you. And I'm going to go prepare this place for you. And then I'm going to come back for you and bring you to that place. And what's more, he says, you already know where this place is. You already know how to get there. You already know the way to this home. And poor Thomas replies, Thomas gets a lot of bad press in the scriptures. He gets some. He says some great stuff, too, but he says stuff like this that gets written down. Um, that's just, you know, kind of gives him a bad reputation. He says, more or less, Jesus, what do you mean we know where you're going? We don't know where you're going, so how do we know how to get there? Because apparently the disciples, especially as they are portrayed in the book of John, never understand when Jesus is using a metaphor. Just They never get it. So he still thinks he's talking about Jesus is saying he's going on a journey, And so he goes, I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. And Jesus replies, and I love his reply. He more or less says, yeah, you do. You know the way. You just don't know that you know. You know. You just don't know that you know. Why? Because he says, I am the way. You want to know how to get to my father's house? You just have to know me. Not not Jerry, obviously. I hope you know him. Yeah, Jesus, right? Um, You just have to know Me and if you know me, you will get there. Because I am the way. In fact, he goes on and says, "I'm the only way." Actually. So, the the, the kind of the summary of this passage is that Jesus prepared has prepared an eternal home for you, and He is the way for you to get to that home. And very briefly, very briefly, we're going to look at three three things that are important about this way. First is that it is narrow. This way is narrow. Secondly, this way is open. And third, this way is costly. So first, and this will be the longest point, so don't worry. The next two will be shorter than this as I go through it. The way is narrow. The way to this home that's been promised for us for all eternity, it's narrow. And maybe a more negative way to say that is it is exclusive. Jesus uh, says, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. This might be the single most offensive passage, the single most offensive book in the New Testament to our culture, this, this verse right here, which means, since I'm speaking about this verse, this might be the most offensive crew talk you ever hear, so we'll see how that goes. It, Jesus, are you telling me that your religion is the only way to truly know God and get to heaven? Jesus, is that what you're trying to tell me? That's got to be the most offensive thing we can say in our culture. Rebecca McLaughlin, in, in this book, about, writes about this conundrum. She says, To our modern ears, the idea of a religion claiming to be the truth is anathema. Most religions, uh, most religions cannot be proved beyond reasonable doubt, at least not until one dies or the world ends. So the idea that there are objective and universal truths seem like a category confusion. A category confusion, that's interesting. It is one thing to say that Christianity is true for you, but to claim that Jesus rightly demands the allegiance of every human being, regardless of one's cultural background or current belief, seems offensive and absurd. As one bumper sticker puts it, my God is too big for one religion. Let me illustrate what Rebecca is saying here. She calls this, she says it seems like a category confusion for us. What that means is, uh, we got to ask ourselves, what, is, what are the Christian claims more like? So let's say I said Jesus Christ died to save sinners so they can get to heaven. What is that statement more like? Is it more like saying the Titanic is sinking and you need to get to a lifeboat? Or is it more like saying... I really like Klein's chocolate ice cream, and I bet if you tried it, you'd like it too. Two completely different categories of claim, right? And so Rebecca McLaughlin says in this book, our culture feels like Jesus is is confusing these two kinds of claims when he makes statements like this. Because Jesus, our culture believes that religious claims are more like ice cream preference, that they are purely subjective and that they can be different for everyone. But Jesus here seems to be claiming that they're actually objective truth claims. In other words, Jesus is claiming that what he is saying is true whether we disagree with it or agree with it. And if we disagree there may be serious consequences. In other words, the modern Western consensus is that any claim about religion or morality fits into the category of purely opinion or subjectivity, like a preference of ice cream. So when Christians take Jesus' words here in this passage seriously and suggest that someone has to trust in Jesus to know God and that all other attempts to know God fall short, it comes across as the pinnacle of ignorance, and arrogance. You catching that? The response would be, how can you tell me that your preferences are better than mine? That your opinion is better than mine? And worse, how can you say that I have to have your opinion if I want to know God and spend eternity with Him? Have you heard that kind of objection to the Christian faith before? Or maybe, have you held, do you currently hold, that kind of objection to the Christian faith, right? And what kind of claims are we talking about here that we would say as Christians are objective and culture would say are subjective? Claims about how you know God, what God is like, and how then should we live? What is morality, right? Our culture says all of those things are subjective and different for everyone. But here's the deal. I hope you're tracking me here, but here's the deal. I don't think anyone actually lives like that. I don't think anyone actually lives like those things are purely subjective and have no firm basis in fact or reality. Morality, uh, salvation, those kind of things. And and this used to be easier to demonstrate. Um, In fact, if we wanted to demonstrate this, we would find a very unlikely ally in Adolf Hitler. So this is how this would go, right? If I'm having a conversation with a college student maybe eight years ago, and, I, and they were telling me that all morality and religion is purely subjective, I would typically ask them, so would you say that what Adolf Hitler did in Europe with the genocide he committed, that that is not objectively wrong, but it only appears subjectively wrong to us? And, and eight years ago, everyone would respond, whoa, no, no, like, of course what Adolf Hitler did is objectively wrong, but most things are subjectively wrong, right? There is an acknowledgement there has to be some things that are just wrong, that there are some things that are just evil, and we, it doesn't matter if I think they're wrong or evil, they are, right? And Hitler was, again, an unlikely ally in proving that. And that would be a helpful tactic until I came here to JMU five years ago. I don't think it was because JMU was different, I think it was because the culture was changing. And for the first time, just a few days after I arrived here at JMU, I was on campus, hanging out, talking to college students, and the same conversation came up, are, are there religious moral claims that are objective or are they all subjective? And I brought up the Adolf Hitler example, and the student who I was talking to looked me in the eyes and said, no, I, I couldn't tell you that what Adolf Hitler did was objectively wrong because there's no such thing as objective truth. Maybe it was the right thing for him. And my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe he'd said it. I actually admired his like, uh, intellectual consistency. And I thought, what am I, how am I going to respond to this? And for a brief moment, I thought, I think I'm going to kick him in the shins. Not because I was angry, but because I, th- I wanted to see how he was going to respond. I wanted to see if he would get angry at me right? Because if you don't believe in objective morality, you can justify punishing me for kicking you in the shins, so I won't do it again and hurt you again. You can justify maybe like making it illegal so society can benefit, but you can't justify being angry. Because anger presupposes a violation of a standard. It it presupposes an offense against something that's right or wrong. And I wanted to see, how would this guy respond if I kicked him in the shins? Um, I didn't do that. Fortunately, I'm still allowed on campus, which is good. Um, but I, I was curious, have he and Unfortunately, I've actually had the same response from people multiple times since then. You see, if there is no absolute moral or religious truth, racism, sexism, murder, sexual abuse, they may be unproductive for society. They may be unpleasant, but they can't be wrong, at least not in a meaningful way, because there's no standard by which to measure them against. It's purely what I think about them. But as I mentioned before, I don't think anyone, least of all anyone in your generation, actually believes that and lives like that, especially when it comes to how, how they should be treated. And actually I need to correct that. There are people who live like this. What do we call people who live like, who don't believe that there is right or wrong and live that way? We call them sociopaths. Like there's a term for this. Who don't don't believe that there is a right or wrong and they can live however they want. And if that student who I was talking to actually believed that what Adolf Hitler did was kind of just like a personal choice and might have been right for him, I'm not sure why he wouldn't fall if he lived consistently with that. I'm not sure why he wouldn't fall into the category of sociopath. As we use, it's not a technical term, it's just a term we use, it's not actually a medical term. But my point here is, I don't think he believed that. Because I believe that he probably still believed and functionally acted like there is a moral standard. Like you shouldn't kick people in the shins. You know, that kind of stuff. If justice is a real thing and not a social construct, if sexual abuse and racism are wrong, objectively wrong, not just unhelpful for society, then there has to be a such thing as objective moral truth. Otherwise those things cannot be wrong in a meaningful way. And if that's the case, And I think everyone really functionally believes that. Then Jesus' claims are not as crazy as they may initially seem to our society. So is Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him? Is that an exclusive, narrow-minded claim? Sure. Yeah, it is, in a sense. But that doesn't make it wrong. You know what else is a narrow claim? That the Titanic is sinking. Right? That's a narrow claim, if you disagree with me you know, then, then I think you're wrong. Or that you shouldn't kill people and you shouldn't be a racist. Those are narrow-minded claims, right? It's I'm saying this is the way, this is right, that you shouldn't be racist, that you shouldn't kill people, right? And if you disagree with me, I think you're wrong. That's a narrow thing to say in the same sense. And frankly, rejecting Jesus's claim because it is narrow and exclusive simply makes you narrow and exclusive in a different way toward those who you see as narrow and exclusive. Have I said narrow and exclusive enough at this point? I think I'll stop. Um, but I hope you get my point. So that's point one. I promise you the next two points are, are much shorter. So point one, we believe that Jesus, this passage teaches that Jesus prepared an eternal home for us and a way to get there. The way is narrow, but point two, the way is also wide open. It might be a narrow path by society's standards, but it is also a wide open door. In fact, Jesus says there are many rooms in this house. It, I think some of us, when we enter this home, when we get to heaven, are going to actually be surprised just how many rooms there are. I think we're going to look around and go, wait, they're allowed in here? But they, they didn't go to my church, right? I think we're going to be surprised just how broad this door is. And are you worried that the door is too narrow and that you might not make it in? Do you want to make sure that you are someone for whom Jesus prepares a room in heaven, for whom existence is an eternity of enjoying a home in a way that we cannot now? Do you want to be someone who enters into the narrow way of Jesus Christ? There's only one prerequisite this passage gives us, only one, and it's to believe. First 1, believe in God the Father and believe in God the Son, Jesus Christ. You do not have to come from a certain culture a certain socioeconomic background. You don't have to be a certain gender or ethnicity. You don't have to have a particular political ideology, no matter what anyone tells you. You don't have to have a certain history of moral performance. You don't have to learn or memorize certain religious texts or perform certain religious ceremonies. You just have to believe. So though the message of Jesus Christ is in a certain way narrow and exclusive, it is also in a much more real sense the broadest possible religion. There is no prerequisite other than simply believing it. There are no obstacles to joining it. The door is open for everyone. But there is actually one obstacle. You have to, in order to respond to Jesus, you have to know about the offer Jesus gives you. And so have you ever thought, man, I just think, I like crew, but they're just to talk a little bit too much about this whole evangelism or missions thing, right? They just want us to, there's a little too focused on us talking about telling other people about Jesus. Ashley just sends a few too many group me's about go time, right? Have you ever thought that? Well, this is why we do it. Because because the claim of the way to, to this mansion in heaven to, is, is narrow, because it's narrow, we have to make sure people know how to get there. Know the person who is the way. But because it's wide and broad, we can tell people about Jesus and believe that they can receive him and, and enter this way because there are no prerequisites for entering in that way. So that is why every Friday so many of you gather for go time because you believe this and you want to help others find this eternal home that Jesus has prepared for them. This is why some of you are signed up to go on summer missions and why I hope others of you consider as well. Because you believe these truths, and you want to help other people find this narrow yet broad gate. So lastly, so that was a shorter point, right? Point three is just as short, I promise. Jesus prepared an eternal home for us, and and he is the way to get there. So point one, the way is narrow. Point two, the way is wide open. But point three, the way is costly. It's very costly. It is true that there are no prerequisites to following Jesus other than just As verse 1 says, believing and trusting the promise. But once you do that, just a warning, you got to watch out because it is going to be a wild ride. You will have your work cut out for you. He is going to transform you through his Holy Spirit. And it is going to feel like hard work. You're going to be doing things like fighting sin, serving others seeking justice for your community, sharing the gospel, it's a hard job, and it's a lifelong job. You know what? It's really going to hurt sometimes. But it is a work that he is going to do through you and for you and will ultimately be for your good, and its end result is going to be arriving at this beautiful home that you will spend eternity in. So it's costly in that way. But I actually don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's talking about it being costly in another way. Jesus says, "I go to prepare a place for you." That's the context. The context here is that Jesus is talking about the fact that he is getting ready to die. I think when I used to read this passage, what I assumed Jesus meant is, "I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to go up to heaven, and then I'm going to like kind of be a divine housekeeper and get a room all cleaned up for you." That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the way that he is going to prepare a place for you, a room for you, a home for you, is by dying and rising again. That is that is the way he's preparing the way for you. There is no other work that will ever have to be done for all of eternity to prepare a home for you other than Jesus dying for you and rising again, which he's already done. If you and And if you would simply trust him, that would be, there would be a room prepared for you. But how did this happen? This is why when Jesus died on the cross, he was able to say, it is finished. Because he completed this work preparing a home for you. But how? Why would God hanging on a cross give me an eternal home? Did you know that people were created with a home? When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a home. He put them in the garden. And they were able to remain in that home with God until they sinned. And the consequence of their sin was having to leave that home and having to leave their relationship with God. Sin expelled us from our home. and expelled us from God's presence. And the rest of the Bible is really the story of God trying and succeeding to bring us back into that home that we lost. And you know how he did it? Here's what's amazing. How did God bring us back to home, the home that we lost? He did it by leaving his home. Jesus left his home, which was heaven, to come here to live as a vagrant, someone who didn't have a home, in order to bring us back to home. When he died, And then when he died, his father rejected him. The rejection that we deserved, he received. I think we know this, right? Like, if your house, God forbid, burned down, right, that would be horrible, horrible, right? You would lose your, your the, the building that you lived in. But I think we know that that's not true homelessness. True homelessness would be if your family rejected you and you didn't have, or your friends reject you, you didn't have people to be your home, a community to be your home. That's true homelessness. And Jesus didn't just leave his home, heaven. He experienced true homelessness when his Father rejected him in our place. He switched places with us. He experienced homelessness that we deserve, so that we can be let into the home that's really his home and that he deserves. Okay, let me pray for us, and then I believe, if you have any questions last minute, you can feel free to text them, and now we will do a little bit of question and answer time. Uh, Father God, thank you for your word in John chapter 14. Lord, I acknowledge that this is a wildly Wildly offensive text to our culture and maybe to us. And Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that if I've offended or hurt anyone, Lord, I pray that uh, I'd have an opportunity to speak to them about it um, and that uh, you would um, resolve that. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's see if we have any questions. We do have a couple questions. Let me just pull them up real quick. By the way, cool. if you have that number, you now have her phone number. So
1: That's true. That's kind of exciting.
0: You're welcome. Um, all right. So first, I have two questions for you. Sure. First of all, how do we practically make God our home in our daily lives? That's a good one. I'm always surprised when I don't know the answer right away to the, the questions that are asked. Um that's a good question, right? Because there's this great promise of this home, like, in the future. But what if I'm feeling homeless right now? Like, what about like, I graduated college, I moved to Orlando, and I longed for a home, and I just I couldn't I couldn't get there. Well, here's a really fun thing: the Bible's full of these things where like the things that are going to be tr- true for us in eternity are like w- moved back in time. This is this is moving back in time uh, to our present. Right, So it's going to be true for us in eternity, but we get to kind of experience it now. What is, what is our experience of the home we get to experience for eternity right now? Well, it's Christian community. It's the church. We get to experience a, like a, a foretaste of what it's going to be like to, to, to live with God and, and our, 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 our Christian family for all eternity when we get to be part of a Christian community like Crew, but more importantly, like your church. And so one really important way that you can experience that is getting deeply involved in a Christian community. Awesome. Thank you. Um, this next question might be kind of a harder question, but um, it says oh. some religions believe murder is a justifiable action or objectively right. Does this support the fact that truth, or not the fact, but does this support that truth is relative? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a world religions expert, and so I, I, I can't necessarily... Um, confirm I'd have to to know a little more about that um, the the point of objective versus subjective truth is that whether a hundred percent of people agree with it it is it's still tr- so true right and so um, unfortunately we uh, we've been living in a society recently where there are majorly different narratives of reality going on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on right now, you may be experiencing a totally different reality, in a sense, than what someone from the other political spectrum is. Um, And so we we see this all the time, but that doesn't necessarily change the fact that there is still truth out there, right? Um, It's just I might, because of my um, brokenness, because of uh, other factors, not be able to fully comprehend that. And so, um, in fact, I, I, I would be shocked if we were able to universally 100% all agree on, um, on what morality was because of this whole idea of sin, right? Our, our sense of right and wrong has been broken. And so it would be surprising if we all were able to 100% come to the same, to the same conclusion. Hope that makes sense. I, I would love to talk to you any of you more about this as well. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.